Welcome to the Improvement Nerds Podcast, where it's our goal to bring together a bunch of improvement nerds in order to start and improve evolution by providing people with a new tool set, a new skill set, and a new mindset. We're grateful that you're spending time with us today. If you enjoy what you hear, please follow our podcast and subscribe because there's sure to be good content that occurs in these conversations as we nerd out. Hey everyone, this is Tom with the Improvement Nerds Podcast. We've got a very special guest today, someone I met about a year ago as I uh, had done a design sprint on women leaders and learned a lot about the importance of supporting women and I enrolled to be an ally uh, to support women and as I did that I came across Julie Kratz. So before I uh, allow her to introduce herself, I'm going to work her up here because she's a tremendously amazing person and I just want to read through some of the things she's done in her career and the things that she's doing to help other people. So Julie's written two books. She's working on a third, which should be released here pretty soon. So I'll let her talk a little bit about those as we get there. She started a consulting business, Next Pivot Point. She's been doing that for five years. And through that, she's engaged a lot of organizations and I know has had a tremendous impact. Uh, She works hard to create male allies. She offers workshops, online training, and resources to help people learn and understand the importance of having diversity inclusion within the workplace. And just recently, maybe about a week ago or two weeks ago, she was invited to be a TEDx presenter. So she's been a very busy person. And the fact that she's taken time uh, out of her week to hang out with us, I'm just over the moon excited. So ladies and gentlemen and improvement nerds of the world, I give you Julie Kratz. (laughs) Thank you, Tom. It's so nice to be with you and all the... uh change nerds and um, diversity and inclusion passionistas and passionate people out there. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So before we jump in, um, what did I miss in that introduction? I know you've got so much going on. Tell, Tell me about this third book. Yeah, yeah, no, thank you for that. So Lean Like an Ally is um, my latest book. So I'd written a couple books before when I first started Next Pivot Point um, a little over five years ago. You know, Tools for Women, this is where our conversation started um, about women leaders and how to build what I call a winning or a game plan. But the conversations evolved on gender and overall diversity and inclusion, and increasingly, we really need our allies as a part of the conversation. And in particular, an area where I'm really passionate about helping organizations is the middle manager. Inside most organizations, two-thirds or so are generally white men. I do not feel like a part of the diversity conversation. You know, when that term comes up, it's like, whoa, (laughs) bump the brakes. Yikes, I'm out of here. (laughs) And I joke, but, you know, sometimes they disappear or oftentimes they'll say, well, I don't have, you know, that's not my topic. That's not something that I could speak about. Right. I haven't had that experience. Well, number one, that's not true. Uh, We all have diversity of our own experiences, whether that's socioeconomically or just your own behaviors, personality. There's so many wrinkles of the human experience beyond Mm -hmm. race and gender that we usually liken it to. And number two, we're never going to make headway on this topic unless we have our allies that are mostly decision makers and side companies engaging this conversation. So thus, Lead Like an Ally is tools for that middle manager and the senior level leaders that I think sometimes, you know, mostly get it. They're getting pressure from the board and other people. So they, they kind of have to be on board. It doesn't trickle down though. And the larger your organization is, that middle band is really confused about their role in something like diversity and inclusion. So I built a, a manager toolkit 
all sorts of interesting questions you can ask your team and deep dive self-awareness exercises to understand your role in diversity and inclusion. So that's what the book's about and it's a fable. So if you like Patrick Lencioni's work or anybody that tells stories to entertain you but tricks you into learning, uh, that's the approach I took with this one. And so it's um, told through my daughter's eyes. Um, she's she's six, so it's, she's not in corporate America yet, but she probably will be someday. And um, I, I, I used her name, Jane, as the main character, um, as a hope that the world is not this way for her. So that was the inspiration for my book. Oh, great. What, what a uplifting motivator to, to create a book, to resource a group of people who oftentimes are stuck in the middle, you know, the organization's um, decisions are made at higher levels of the organization. They're communicated down and they're expected to be executed on by individuals who are in a management position who are feeling a pinch and to give them a resource to say, here's how maybe a field guide or tools or ideas to enable you to actually make an impact and be effective. What a, what a great resource. And then also to be writing this book because you want to address this issue head on so that it's not an issue when your daughter is of age and joins the workforce. So just those two things behind this book, I know are going to set it up well to, to be well-received and to be very successful. So you said it's coming out soon. When can people expect this, this resource to be available? Yeah. It's on um, Amazon right now as an Audible. So if you like audiobooks, um, Audible has a great um, intro price right now Um, in Kindle. So if you like eBooks, it's available that way as well. Um, And then the paperback version and hard copy will be available in bookstores April 7th. So just a few weeks away. Um, And I'm excited. Um, Really, you know, it's the third book. So it's it's very much like a third child <laughs> and it, uh, it's a labor of love. I, I wrote it over a year ago. So it feels like finally, you know, as an author, that's the hard part when people ask you like, how excited are you about the book? Like I've been excited. It's hard to maintain that enthusiasm for a whole year, yes. um, but I am. And, and for anyone local to Indy area, I invite you to join our book launch celebration. It's free um, downtown in Irvington at this cool new up, um, up and coming area, co-working space. Um, called the outhouse and um, it'll be April 13th um, for 4 to 6 p.m. So that would be something great to share with your listeners as well. If you want to join in the celebration and meet some amazing people that are about diversity and inclusion in our local. Oh, there, there's surely to be a gathering of improvement nerds there. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for sharing about the, your book and filling that in. I'm excited for the release. I'm excited that you continue to offer great tools and resources to help people around this pretty difficult conversation and this topic that many people have avoided far too long and um, you don't shy away from it and you're giving people resources that allow them to lean into it. So, you know, I know that's likely to be what we touch on in our conversation, but before we go really deep in that, I want to make sure that we air to our audience uh, the best ways to get a hold of you. Because I'm sure as we start talking, you're going to hit on things that people just resonate with and really speaks to them. And I I want to make sure that we start with how to get a hold hold of you before we go into our conversation and uh, dive deeper and nerd out. So what's the best ways? Yeah. Um, my website, nextpivotpoint.com. So check that out. We have a plethora of free resources, the resources tab at the, the top uh, menu bar. Dig in. Um, free videos, workbooks, uh, 
guides, um, things to meet you along your way in your inclusive leadership journey, checklists, all sorts of tools to get kickstart that conversation inside your organization. So welcome you to check out any of those free resources there. And then send me an email. Um, I, I respond to every email I get personally at julie at nextpivotpoint.com. So send me a note, uh, especially if you're interested in sharing these topics with your organization. There's lots of clever ways we can tailor the content to meet you where you're at on your leadership journey and meet your leadership team and organization where they're at. So, and we're just launching some new virtual um, learning programs um, that are hosted on our own learning management system or can be hosted on your learning management system. So that's something cool I'm excited about because I, I don't think you have to wait and schedule, you know, some big live event for everyone to feel uncomfortable about talking about diversity. Mm-hmm. Why not, you know, learn in the privacy of your own home or personal computer? Um, I think there's some great virtual options to get people up to speed much more quickly on this topic. Great. Well, thank you for sharing uh, that way of, of reaching you. And I hope as we dive in that people's excitement about your your background and how you're acting as a resource for organizations and for individuals to, to be successful in having these conversations. So as we dive deeper in that, I know people are going to definitely be shaking their heads in agreement and uh, that hopefully their excitement grows that this is something that you can be successful in talking about and form bridges and create um, collaboration in spaces where maybe you were too too intimidated to try before. Uh, so as we you know start this conversation, those people that are ready to do that and to walk that journey, now they know how to get a hold of you. So I'm excited for that. So let's let's start with the first question that I've asked of all the improvement nerds I've, I invite on my show is what nerds you out. Oh, what gets me all fired up? Yeah, I can I could talk forever about this topic of diversity and inclusion, but obviously that's an umbrella, you know, to so many different spokes of a conversation. And so I think when I get excited about um most recently, I've gotten really curious about racial diversity, um, for example. So I identify as Caucasian or white, um, which means I have a lot of privilege associated with just the color of my skin. And it used to be something, honestly, that scared me. And I don't want to talk about race. I'm white. Oh, you know, what if someone calls me a racist or I'm being racist, exhibiting racist behavior? Um, the more I've studied it and got comfortable um, being uncomfortable myself with this topic, the more that I've understood really how it feels to be an ally. You know, I was asking men to be allies for women many years ago. And yeah, a lot of them deeply connected with a a woman in their life, a daughter, a mother, a grandmother, you know, somebody that inspired them to be an ally. Um, But a lot, you know, just thought it was the right thing to do. But then they would say, oh, I'm scared to do this. Or what if I say the wrong thing? Yikes. There's a lot of risk associated with allyship. Yeah. um, And I feel that now in these conversations about race of, I don't have all the answers. I don't know what it's like to be a person of color. Um, I've seen the eyes through, or seen the world through the eyes of a white person um, my whole life, and I can't unsee that. So it's challenging um, to be an ally for somebody in a group of people you don't understand. Like, not that you don't understand, that you, you're trying to understand, that you're striving. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really speaks to what I say with allyship. It's in the eye of the beholder. You know, I can't claim to be a white ally, and a man can't claim to be a male ally. Um, that's kind of counterproductive to save the day, put on my ally rescue cape. Allies instead 
say I'm trying or I want to be or I'm striving to be, I'm learning to be. Um, they recognize it's a journey, not a destination. And so that's what I get passionate about is um, helping people understand like your privilege, your um, your differences, your similarities can be like a great vehicle to propel change. So um, it, it's, it's unfortunate that we've done a really cruddy job of including the white male majority in the DNI conversation. And I know you and I've talked about this before. Um, about what it's going to take to get more of that, that demographic or people that identify that way into the conversation. And that's something I'm, I'm really compelled um, to speak to, help provide some psychological safety around, um, having had my own kind of epiphany <laughs> set of experiences as of late that I get it. It's, it's uncomfortable. It's hard work, um, but it really pays off. Like on the mm-hmm. other side of this, just, I feel like a better human and doesn't make me perfect and I'm not the perfect ally, but I want to be better and I'm getting better. Um, so I'll just keep on working at it. Yeah. I think that is just very insightful that one of the things you nerd out about is allyship and that that's a journey. And has you started to offer services around encouraging people to act as an ally it was an initial focus on men in leadership roles. And that's how you and I intersected. And that then was a a robust conversation about the things that that men can do. But there was still a lot of people then that were not represented. If we had only focused on creating allies in in men, now now it sounds like you're taking an allyship is becoming broader. And it's not just to men, but it's to women as well, so that they can represent the underrepresented and that it's really, you know, a commitment that you have to make to to be willing to be uncomfortable and to just accept that people are going to give you grace because there's not really one way to be the perfect ally for everybody. And really that has you act as an ally, the best way to improve at that is to seek feedback on how your behaviors are helping to represent mm-hmm. that person you're trying to advocate for. So what a tremendous um, thing to be passionate about. And yeah. um, I'm, I'm sure that as you work through this and you meet people and help them to be a better ally, you see transformations happen in those individuals. And I'm sure that just creates a lot of energy because you see it right there in front of you. This one person now is believing it's more possible. And maybe sometimes you're not going to see how that person's actions or behaviors impacts the people that they're actually trying to serve as an ally, but you see it in them. So that's got to give you a lot of energy and confidence. But do you ever get to see past that one individual that you've encouraged to be an ally to actually see what that person's impact has been to the the groups that they're trying to better represent? Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, it, it allyship is is complicated. You know, there's not a one size fits all to it. And you know, allies are, I think, driven to your point about positive impact, having a positive impact on, on people's lives and helping people be better and helping people grow. And by um, helping, you know, I th- and, and, and the root of human beings, if you ask people like what they really, what really drives you, what do they nerd out on, you know, to your, <laughs> to your point, it's about helping people. And the impact of that um, from an allyship perspective is people will tell me on the other side of showing up for somebody and being an ally for them, um, 
it, it's it's like the little things that I do. It's like these subtle little acts of kindness, of support. Um, I think oftentimes as allies, you don't even know you're doing or you don't even acknowledge the impact that it is having. But it's it's things like, you know, somebody's interrupting somebody in a meeting and it's just simply interjecting, interrupting the interrupter mm-hmm. and saying, hey, can we go back to so-and-so? They were still talking here. Um, that has a huge ripple effect. Um, interruptions, just one, one microaggression. If you take just interruptions, for example, 23 minutes is lost in someone's productivity for every interruption they experience. So if you are interrupted in a meeting, it takes you 23 minutes to like get back in sync with what you're thinking. If you're in a half an hour meeting, your meeting's toast, right? Mm -hmm. So I I think it speaks to allyship really being subtle acts of kindness, subtle acts of support, of nudging, of help um, that are intentional, but not save the day behaviors. It's not like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to go get you a new job or I'm going to make sure you get that pay increase. Those may feel big and huge and like I really knocked it out of the park like allyship doesn't work like that it's it's um less of a slam dunk and it's more of an assist you know to use like a basketball mm-hmm. analogy which to be honest I've never used that analogy before it just came it to was me a, so that fast. was a good analogy it's a little it's like a little short pass to somebody that's being overlooked right yeah in allies there's little subtle acts of kindness of support threaded in a day I mean just if couple things like that happen in a day, it totally reverses the negative momentum of the microaggressions that we know people that are underrepresented experience at a far greater rate. We just assume white men are right. Um, they don't get interrupted. They don't, um, they're not overlooked for positions very often. It's just, it's a human bias that we have because we've seen a world where my, white men, for the most part, make decisions or in positions of power, still accumulate most of the wealth and power um, and so that's just what we see. And that's what our brains acknowledge is that's the authority. But when in fact, things are shifting and in order for things to shift, we have to kind of shift those, those patterns and, and styles of our behavior. I think that the example you gave of in a meeting, someone maybe who's underrepresented trying to offer input gets interrupted and someone who is of authority um, takes a pause and redirects the conversation back to that person. That's a great example of one small thing that someone can do to act as an ally for others. And in that, you know, you're going to better represent that person, but you're also showing to that culture what behaviors you're you're wanting to see be replicated is that everyone has a voice on our teams. And it's a great way to take a culture and elevate it to where maybe without formally being trained as an ally, individuals start to emulate those behaviors and therefore they become allies because of that. So creating this, this cultural engine that is more inviting and inclusive can be done through people doing these small acts of kindness and just being consistent with those things and that the people that look to that individual for leadership then we'll start to emulate those things and repeat them in their own behaviors and everyday activities. And over time, you'll see a new culture arise through behaviors that are more inviting and more inclusive. So I like that what you're, what you're saying in allyship is let's not look for this reset button where we're improving in a monumental way and we're undoing 
things that have taken a long time to form, but we're changing our, our behaviors intentionally and allowing those behaviors to grow over time to undo these things that have existed for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. These systems, I think one thing is acknowledging as an ally, the systems of which we operate in um, have not been created by us. Our generation did not create these systems that are biased, that, you know, kind of um, puts somebody notably in kind of a position of power or authority versus others. But these systems were created a long time ago. Um, and we're still living within these systems. So we actually benefit from these systems. We have a role in deconstructing these systems and modifying them to fit the needs of like a modern workforce. And so um, it, it's kind of ridiculous to think, you know, to build a house, you know, keep using, I'm in an analogy mood. You, you built the house in 1950 and things have changed since 1950, just like the workplace was built in 1950. Things have changed since 1950. However, if you look at the workplace today in 2020, it is still very much operates the same as it did in the 1950s. That'd be like having a house designed in 1950 and still living in it the way that it was um, built back then. I mean, things like refrigeration, air conditioning, mm-hmm. you know, modifications have been made to accommodate the modern environment. Same needs to go for your workplace. And so while these systems were built with, you know, I wouldn't even say good intentions, but intentions mm-hmm. back then, um, they really need to be reexamined. And, and, and to some, in some degree, um, I, you won't have to throw everything out, but I, I think we really have to take an inclusive lens on our processes our systems and think about ways we can support something like allyship instead of reinforcing um, the status quo. Yeah. So so thank you so much for, for sharing us that passion. I'm curious, how did this all start for you? So you've been doing it now uh, as your primary focus for five years through the next pivot point consulting group. So, uh, but I'm assuming you didn't take the leap to start to do this just on a whim, that there was probably things that you had observed in your career or in your life that made you realize this calling. So I'm curious, how how did this come about for you? And maybe why uh, did you take the leap? And why do you keep doing this? Yeah, it's, um, you know, one of the risks of this work is compassion fatigue. Um, And why having a strong why is a way I get through some of the tough days. You know, I've been asked weird questions on stage, you know, in front of hundreds of people, you know, things, everything from how the Bible supports male supremacy um, to people asking why do we have to lower the standards for people that are diverse <laughs> to be inclusive. And, you know, both of those are such problematic things for people to say overtly, less, let alone like what they're actually thinking and not saying. Um, so this work is hard. Um, it can quite it can be exhausting. So why I keep doing it um, is, is, is really back to the why I shared with you about my daughter and the why for my recent book. I mean, it has to be different for her. Like something like gender equality, if you just isolate gender, um, mm-hmm. we're 208 years away in the United States. And, and the sad thing about gender in the United States is it's, it's getting a lot worse. Um, it's actually not getting better at all. It's stagnated and is retreating. That could be because of things going on politically right now, but I'm not even going to go there. (laughs) I think we know. Um, 
we were ranked in the top 20s on gender equality when the UN started, um, the World Economic Forum rather, started measuring this in the 1970s. Um, we're now 53rd. So mm-hmm. it's, and we were 38 recently. So it, it's, it's bad. And if you look at countries that are ahead of us, Cuba, um, Zimbabwe, um, Rwanda, uh, not, and not anything against those countries, but I think at, at face value, Americans being competitive Americans that we are, we would think, oh, we're better than them, right? We've mm-hmm. got that figured out. I mean, we are a melting pot country and we can't figure this out. It's, it's deep rooted stuff. And um, how we treat women in our country and people of color is just not right. So I can't like stand by, <laughs> just can't look the other way. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. This is part of being an ally that's so hard. It's like, oh, I can't walk away now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> can't live in this complacent, the world is equal um, type of vacuum. It just, it's irritating. Um, and then I watch these Netflix documentaries and I get all fired up <laughs> just to the point where I'm like so mad and so inspired at the same time. It's like, um, one of the things I think I meant to do, like my gift and my purpose is to make this conversation more palatable for people. Um, it's not safe. It, it has to be brave. It has to be difficult and uncomfortable. Like it just has to be like, we would have done this if it was easy. Mm-hmm. So that sucks, but <laughs> there are tools. I often talk, it's like a toolkit. Like there are tools that work that can shortcut your experience. I've, been studying this for five plus years and um, it took me a long time to learn this stuff it shouldn't have to take that long so how can I speed it up for people based on what I've learned along the way and I'm by no means an expert but trying every day um, to show up as an ally and advance this conversation because going backwards is it's just not an option yeah what what a great way has we talked about with your book what a great way to stay motivated is to think about the work that we have to put in as parents and community members to create the pathway for the next generation and to set set in place the environment where hopefully this is easier to talk about, ideally not even present anymore. But, you know, as you mentioned, a lot of uh, individuals who've done analytics on this and are forecasting our uh, continued gap you know, there, there's a hundreds of years in, in those estimates. So to think in our lifetime and even in our child's lifetime, that this stuff is going to be resolved is somewhat daunting. But yeah. the reality is, is that if we don't start it, those forecasts are going to get longer and longer and longer. So it's, it's, it's great that you have this resilience and that you're showing up and you're putting forward the effort to get this thing started and as you were saying, I know that that's exhausting work, but you're out there sharing that I'm, I'm uncomfortable too. And I'm, I'm afraid to mm-hmm. join me in this and we will figure it out as a group instead of, you know, a select few people trying to grind it on their own. It's making it inviting for everyone to get involved. And I think maybe then we can shorten that timeline and we can close these gaps faster. So I'm, I'm hopeful that mm-hmm. the estimates are grossly overstated um, <laughs> and that, you know, through your work, you're seeing traction and you're seeing a lot of organizations serve as role models and that those mm-hmm. role models aren't keeping the success that they've had under lock and key, but they're, they're promoting it and they're publishing it and they're encouraging it of, yeah. of others. And to me, that's true leadership 
as an organization is to not just create success for yourself, but to do it and to showcase it and to share it and encourage others to do it as well. And through the organizations you're working with, these are early adopters, they're pioneers. And, um, you know, I'm sure they, they all look different, but, you know, the more and more organizations that you work with, the more and more that are out there and they'll continue to act as Mm -hmm. allies and represent this conversation without you being there. And that's gotta be pretty fulfilling to realize that you've worked with an organization and now that organization, they have their own circle and that they can have an impact there. So this is kind of like a ripple effect. It's great that you're casting that first stone and you're, you're making ripples and that those ripples are going to definitely impact your daughter's life as she, you know, prepares to join the workforce, which, you know, you think, Oh, when she's 18 or so that's 12 years away. Uh, My kids are growing up extremely fast. So I know that's really not that long, long from now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it helps to prevent the kick the can type of mm-hmm. philosophy. Yes. Well, and another thing to know, Gen Z that's just starting to enter the workforce now, um, they are the most diverse generation, which, you know, we know that every generation gets more and more diverse. But what's interesting about Gen Z is immigration peaked in like 2005 in the United States. So Gen Z might truly be like the most diverse generation we've had mm. because of how things have been handled recently. So you think about that and them entering the workforce, I mean, their survey data shows, whereas baby boomers and Gen um, Xers are kind of not complacent. They're a little sleepy with diversity and inclusion. Like, yeah, it's important, but like we've got business to do. Millennials are, are passionate about it, but not willing to like die on the sword for it. You know, mm-hmm. Gen Zers are like, no, I will not work for an organization that's not inclusive. I just won't. And if you don't look like people I know, no, thanks. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think you're going to see a swift reaction. Um, if you want the best young talent, uh, you're, you're, if you're not focused on DNI, you're behind already. And I think that you can take that in a lot of different directions, not just diversity and inclusion, but, you know, work-life balance or purpose at work or corporate social responsibility that the organizational's attitudes about those things are now becoming more and more important for prospective employees because they believe those things are important. And if the organization doesn't believe those things are important, they're incompatible in organizations that don't have, you know, corporate social responsibility programs or diversity inclusion programs. I think you're right. They are struggling to recruit uh, young talent. And uh, so what, what you're from, from a business perspective, this makes sense, but I know that's mm-hmm. not what's motivating you. And I hope it's not what's motivating your organizations to do this. I, I believe people are doing it for a humanitarian purpose mm-hmm. is to lift one another up and, and to better our country through creating opportunity for everyone, which yeah. is going to take time. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Um, it is going to take time. So it does require patience, but Again, I think you have to teeter totter between patience and complacency. You know, things will, people will say mm-hmm. things like, it's getting better. Like, maybe, but like, what, by what measurement are you saying? Uh, that, yeah, right? I'm glad you're bringing this up because oh, when you and I connected, <laughs> um, I had just done a design sprint on women leaders in healthcare and our organization, therefore, thinking, um, I love the, the the journey that they allowed me to go on when I was with them. 
And some of the data they were looking at was like percent of workforce and percent of leadership. And I think, yeah, that's, those are pretty easy metrics to look at as like, how diverse are you from a, you know, a pie chart perspective, but double click on that and look at, are these women who are in leadership um, earning the equivalent of their male counterparts? Are these women who are in leadership respected and do they have the decision-making authority as their male counterparts? And those things are a lot harder to measure. And when we were on the design sprint, from a statistics perspective, you know, everyone believed, yeah, we were diverse and women were well represented in leadership. But when you double clicked on that data and you asked those harder questions about salary and uh, authority or decision-making ability, those, they were unable to be answered. And I think those are important measures to be seeking out is how do we quantify those things? Yeah. Yeah. And, and what's interesting about that data is, it, especially salary data, so sensitive. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. And I just coach organizations like be transparent. Because here's the thing even if you're not doing a pay gap study, even if you're not measuring the perceptions of the pay gap, the perception still exists, as you found in your research, right? Mm-hmm. And the perception of authority. So you're not actually telling anybody anything they don't already know because they already think they know that. Mm hmm. So by hiding information and not being transparent, it's so much worse because then it looks like you're hiding something and it's supporting the justification of that perception, even if it's untrue. Now, something like pay data, we know enough to know 82 cents on the dollar women are making to their male counterparts. It's pretty true. Women of color are much worse. Um, it's probably happening in your organization. I, I think every woman I've coached has told me, I didn't know I was making less until I compared notes with my male counterpart. <laughs> Even worse, mm-hmm. I got promoted to managing somebody. I found out my team makes more than me. It's like, wow. Um, and that's just insulting. I mean, that's just, that's just wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it goes back to, I mean, the root cause of that behavior is we see men as providers and women as caregivers. And at the core of that behavior of justifying promotions and pay increases to male counterpart, male men over women, and I'm not saying this happens everywhere, but it happens a lot. Uh, we're doing so because we assume the man has a family to support and we're assuming the woman is a caregiver for her family and has a man to support her. That's just not the way the world works anymore. There are so many single caregivers. There are so many men that want to be involved as fathers and, and rightfully so. I mean, we were doing a disservice mm-hmm. to men. Um, and there's so many women that are breadwinners now that are fighting an unfair fight. And so something like pay equality, challenging that in an organization, so, so important. Um, but no matter what, doing a study like you got to lead Tom on, you know, really digging into some of the data, um, or in the perceptions of Mm -hmm. women in the workplace. And I know you had these personas, right. And they were, had different races, different, um, elements of diversity, which is great. Um, but these are people's perceptions and you don't understand the perceptions of diversity in your organization. That's a great place to start is to, to dig in. And, um, I've got a free online assessment actually on my website, 20 questions to see how inclusive you are. It's super telling. If you can compare notes with somebody you work with, you're like, Oh, I didn't know you thought that let's talk about why it doesn't make you right. Um, but you're thinking that, right? So that's Mm -hmm. something we should probably talk about instead of skirt around. Yeah. I think that's, interesting because in in a design sprint you're relying more on 
quantifiable or qualitative data. You're listening to stories and you're connecting to emotion and you're practicing empathy and you're gathering these people's perspectives of the world. And as you create these personas, as we did in the sprint that we had done with the healthcare organization uh, that I had worked for at the time, there was a broad spectrum and there were personas that we came across that felt that they were well represented and that they didn't think there was an issue. But then on that other side of the spectrum, there were individuals who had the opposite opinion. And I think that just the reality of this is those people who don't believe it is an issue are larger in number than those who actually have the issue and have to deal with it every single day. And therefore those who haven't had to deal with it, they have this amazing opportunity to act on the privileges that they have in their life. And not all of them, you know, had tremendous privilege, but, and, and maybe they came from a little bit more, but there's people who came from a lot less. And with that little bit more, you have this opportunity to give and to create. And I think in the design sprint, we, we had gone through what we noticed is that a lot of the things that were in place within that organization were tailored to the people who already had a lot and that those people who had a lot, they really weren't asking for more. And in fact, they were advocating for ways for them to give what they had to others. And I, it was just such an upliving exercise to hear these stories and to help an organization come up with a, a, a plan and a, a variety of different approaches that considered everyone's very needs as a way to see the way forward instead of taking a sample size of one or the most popular opinion and acting on that. It was, let's hear all these perspectives and consider those things in the next steps we take. So it was super uplifting work. And I think maybe in your work, as you help organizations, that's probably the discovery that they're having is that similar aha of we've put all of our eggs in this one basket and we didn't fully understand everyone's needs and therefore whatever direction we've taken, we thought we were helping, but maybe in those actions of this go forward, we're creating a bigger and bigger divide. And it, you, what they need to do is just keep those things in check because, you know, good intentions sometimes can cause a greater divide. The best thing is to try to see the problem from all angles and to under, try to understand this problem through empathy and then act. And, and I was just grateful that I was invited to be part of that design team. Yeah. Yeah. Giving people the opportunity to open the window to a world we may not understand and giving people permission to be curious. Um, That's one of the big pillars of allyship and cultures of allyship is curiosity Mm -hmm. and letting people have the freedom to come to their own conclusions without management being like, well, what you really mean is this, or like, this would actually be much more helpful if you got us data on this, right? Mm -hmm. They're not going to really learn what the real situation is. And sometimes managers think they want to know and then they really don't want to know. (laughs) So being okay with that uncomfortable murky part where we've got some cleanup to do. Um, Can't, we can't survive just staying the same and and, and humans are wired. We were talking about change and change management as we were um, preparing for today. And there's so much synergy with DNI, diversity and inclusion and change management. Mm-hmm. And for any organizational change, it's the small acts, right? It's the individual acts of people um, coming together as a community and deciding together we will behave this way. We will modify these things because it's better for the greater good. And those little behaviors, right, add up over time and support a cultural transformation. 
Mm-hmm. Sometimes I have clients that come to me and like, we went, we have a cultural and an initiative. Oh yeah. I hate that word. The in, word initiative uh, we use in business for like business things. Like we're going to do an online initiative. Mm-hmm. Uh, diversity doesn't work that way. <laughs> so you can't just decide we're going to do a diversity and inclusion initiative, right? No, it's a, it's an organizational cultural <laughs> transformation. It is a big change and it can't just be done in a one year initiative cycle. Mm-hmm. So let's stop shortcutting it and doing the real work to get there. Um, and the examples I see of that, and I know you experience this in corporate America and probably see it still with, with your clients is this one and done mentality, come in and do um, a unconscious bias training. People love mm-hmm. to start with that. Like, no, and that's not the right place to start. And, and I've started to get like mm-hmm. authoritative about this because it just t- takes me off. Right. Um, it's something that gets me nerded out, I guess, to use your words is that's just not the right place to start smacking people in the face with what's wrong with them. Mm-hmm. Instead, you know, let's talk about why this matters and, and what we expect from you and your role in this, especially if you're not somebody that sees themselves as diverse. So let's have a longer term conversation about this and just thread the needle. You know, I love kind of that analogy too, of it's, it's just different loops, different tools, um, layering them together and then helping people bridge the gap between what they know now and what they need to know to be successful in the future. And the skills that got you there, you know, won't get you where you want to be in the future. You got to learn new stuff. So being open to that and expecting that I think as an organization is, um, paramount. And, and the other key part is when business gets hairy, which, you know, we're experiencing right now, uh, coronavirus and, you know, things that are, are shaping, you know, the short term, um, you know, that, that's an extreme example, but one that I might use is, you know, oh, we have a, uh, our stock returns are following this quarter, mm-hmm. such a short-term emphasis on business results. Oh, we got to cut the DNI program, right? That says a lot. Um, that says that it's really not important, right? Um, so sticking with something like diversity and inclusion, even when it's hard, right? Mm-hmm. Especially when it's hard, that signals that it's truly important and that we're actually really committed to this. But it, it's it's not easy. It's not easy to do that and make those tough decisions because we're rewarded for business performance, um, first and foremost. And how do you measure something like diversity and inclusion? It's much harder. Yeah, it, I'm shaking my head. I know... Um, you and I were having this conversation by phone and I'm just nodding along and smiling. And, and I know we're talking about diversity and inclusion and how organizations resource that and communicate to everyone there that it's important is um, an accelerant. You know, if they focus on the why and they commit fully and that, that commitment is unwavering, that is good leadership. And that, that same thing is true for the world I come from, which is process improvement and continuous improvement. And, you know, where we work with organizations, what we're trying to do is to help leaders demonstrate commitment to the employees that they're behind them and that they want to help these employees be successful in their work. And they understand that maybe the processes that these workforce members were given um, were not designed with the customer's needs in mind. They were designed with whatever resources were available at the time. And maybe they worked back then, but reality is, is they don't work today. And in continuous improvement, leaders need to show that they trust the employees to take ownership of those processes and to improve them. And whenever you get started in a continuous improvement journey, it 
people tend to call it the same thing. It's a, it's an initiative or it's a project. It's got a clear start and stop date. And those things, yes, are important to organize people around it and to get things done. But these things don't have an end date. You can't commit to a culture of continuous improvement and say it's going to happen by this date or the same as diversity inclusion. It's not going to happen by a certain date. It is just Mm -hmm. a belief system within the organization that has to become saturated and present in everyday behaviors for it to truly be successful. And couldn't agree more. I love what you're saying is that this, these things go hand in hand. Uh, The question I do ask towards the end of every interview is how does this intersect with improvement? And I know that diverse teams and teams that are inclusive and inviting of everyone's ideas are more successful. So in regards to the world I live in, where I'm facilitating project teams to innovate and solve big problems, the more diverse team that I can get and the more psychological safety I can create to where everyone feels comfortable to contribute, the bigger, the better, the grander and more successful the ideas are going to be. But you were talking just beyond that. That's like an example of one project being successful. What you're saying is from a change management perspective or a change leadership perspective, if diversity inclusion is is present within the organization, that anything that organization tries to do is likely to be more successful because it's got a lot of different opinions that have contributed to the ideas that are diverse and therefore more real and representative of real reality. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's an example of a a small team example. Yeah. You had a couple of diverse perspectives, like, holy smokes, we got way better ideas. Right. Mm -hmm. I I think, you know, if you're still on the fence of whether this matters to you, try that out and see what happens. You're right. I mean, Harvard Business Review has been publishing data on this for over 10 years. Study after Mm -hmm. study shows, I mean, 87% better decisions, 21% higher profitability. I mean, these are real numbers are studied by smart people. So I, I get sick of talking about the business case. I'm kind of getting on my pet peeves right now. I promise not to get angry. <laughs> it's the human case. It's the human case that matters. Why is this important to you as a human being yes. um, that I think really propels change? Um, but to your point, I mean, back to the business case, one question that usually is a zinger for people. And think about this one. Who do you want to do business with in the future? So if you're an organization, a nonprofit, think about your client base, whatever, whatever organization structure you have, if, you, if you're a school system, what does your future customer, um, constituent, whatever you want to call them, what do they look like? What do they behave like? Okay, so what's the future look like? Say 10, even 10 years from now, what we know from a racial um, diversity perspective, it's going to be a lot less white, a lot more um, blended of races. We also know um, it's going to be much more um, inclusive in thought, like we know about Gen Z. Uh, We also know that, you know, gender equality is going to be an issue. We know that different experiences are going to be valued. So these are the people you want to do business with or engage with. Mm -hmm. Um, If those are the types of people you want money from or um, stakeholdership from, whatever that looks like, you need to reflect that in the walls of your organization. So if you look, yeah, maybe you do a good job at entry level. Most most companies do. Uh, then you, as you go up, it gets murkier and murkier, more and more hom- homogenous, middle manager band. And then by the time you make it to the C-suite, the board, uh, it's not diverse. There's very few organizations that have done this unless they've intentionally set out to do it and spent many years doing it. Mm-hmm. 
So if you don't look like who you want to do business with or who you want to engage with, that is a big problem. Um, There is no way that you're going to understand the needs of an audience you yourself don't reflect. And so I think, I think about that as an exercise, it's paint your customer, your constituent, whatever, whatever, um, you know, however your business is operating, whoever it is, what do they look like? What do they think like? What do they behave like? So it's not just optics, but dig deeper. Mm-hmm. What's that persona look like? If you had to summarize it in a snapshot and then how much do we resemble that? I'm going to venture to say most companies don't. Okay. And not even close. That should send off alarm bells of we can do better than this. I love that you are challenging people to not just think about the business case. And although in a handful of the examples we've had, there is obviously a business case to this. So if people are disputing it because of that reason, they're standing on very loose sand. I like that you're saying there's a very real and a more important human case. And I couldn't agree more with you in the example I'd given about project teams benefiting from more diversity inclusion. The the thing in that transactional example is take projects for, for organizations. They are a source of energy or they're a source of frustration. They can either succeed or they can cause chaos. And that doesn't just impact the organization, that impacts the people within that organization. So successful business in some ways is important to create meaning for the employees that they, they have within their, within their four walls. Yeah. And I, I've read somewhere that it's becoming more important for organizations to find ways to develop and give people purpose and to change their definition of customer from not just the end use of the person who buys their services, but to their employees as well, to consider them a customer too, because you have a responsibility to them. And, and an organization who just haphazardly does projects, doesn't invite diversity inclusion, acts on the loudest voiced ideas, and those projects crash and burn, those, those failures weigh on the organization and the people of that organization. And the more and more that that happens, those people's energy and attitude, not just about their work, but about themselves can become at risk and they can start to think negatively about their own worth. And the more and more that happens, people take that negative feeling out of the workplace and into their homes and don't have the energy to do the work that they have to do there. Because this isn't just an issue within our our workplace. We have an issue that needs to be addressed within our communities and our societies. And the only way to do that is to show up in your communities and be a contributor there as well. But if at work, if you're just getting your butt kicked and things aren't making sense or you're feeling all alone or you're not feeling valued, you are going to go home and those same feelings are going to prevent you from doing the important work you got to do there too. So this thing, this whole thing, it's like a giant ecosystem and everything's so connected and we can create a lot of good if we address this thing head on not just in business success, but in people feeling included and successful, that can just create a whole different type of energy in our communities. And that's what I'm hopeful to see happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Planting those seeds and, and hoping it inspires positive change. I, I'm hopeful too. I mean, my, uh, my pessimism is not, yeah. not as strong as it could. I got my fire lit today with everything going on, but it's, um, 
I agree with you. It's um, we're at we're at a turning point of change. And to highlight something that you build on really nicely is the employee experience is going to drive the customer experience, right? So you thinking are, yes. about your employees, right, and how inclusive they are. Like if they're not being inclusive, there's no way your customers being treated inclusively. And who doesn't want that, right? So let, let's start internally first, and hopefully that that translate that will translate um, to the external marketplace and these these are like core you know competitive differentiators um i work with a lot of global leaders that are focused on this and despite their best intentions they're not where they want to be so if you get good at this i mean a great example is salesforce you know here in our local community they're a pioneer in this space i mean they're doing a lot of the things we've been talking about and really have been active on allyship for for a long time and they're growing, right? Mm-hmm. They're doing really well financially. So it's not that this is going to cost you something. This is actually going to grow your business um, if you go about this the right way. So thinking about this as an investment in the future and a long-term focus, um, it's, just, it's absolutely critical. Yes. And I'm glad you brought up that organization because I know a handful of individuals that work at Salesforce and they are connected to their organization's mission and purpose, and they are very happy in their work. And I have to believe that's because Salesforce is intentionally doing things to allow for happiness to occur. And in a lot of organizations, they, they're working on engagement. And, you know, there's a lot of things that can be done. I just encourage organizations that are working on those things to make this part of that and to make it not just an initiative, but to make it a a focus that is ever present and people like you are great resources to make those things a reality. And I'm just thankful for your friendship. And I'm thankful that you're out there having these hard conversations. And I think about you often because I know it's not easy and I admire the resolve that you have and the energy that you have to keep it going. And I thank you for taking time out of your day to have this conversation with me and, and the audience that I'm trying to reach to encourage them that someone has to start it yeah. and who knows what will happen thereafter, but we got to have that bravery and that courage to get it going. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. And I appreciate your allyship um, and support of this message. It's not easy. It's a, it's a delicate topic, but the more we talk about it, it's just like everything else. The more you talk about it, the easier it gets. So do it afraid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're going to be afraid at the beginning. I, I totally get it. Uh, when I first started talking about white privilege in front of groups of people of color, like it was deeply uncomfortable for me. It's not anymore. Um, and I got to evolve, right. And put myself in a more uncomfortable position to keep learning, but it, it just, it gets easier the more you do it. So get yes. brave, put yourself out there. What's the worst that could happen? Um, it's just amazing how much better of a human we become when we're open to, to change. Yeah, that is so well said. And thank you again for being that role model to say, if anything, you're, you're going to be uncomfortable and you may feel like you're doing it wrong, but that's okay. At least you're doing it. And that, that behavior is going to cause an impact and whether in encouraging people to do it too, or by advocating for those people who need you to stand up for them. So just a great message that you have. And I can't wait to read your new book as it comes out. I can't wait to watch your TEDx presentation when that becomes available in the next couple of weeks. I think you're doing great things. And, you know, I'll um, 
you know, stay involved and you've given me courage to, to, you know, make sure that when I work with my clients that I, I pay attention to this too, and it can be an encourager to them yeah. by some of these behaviors that you've suggested. Yeah. And even just asking the question, I mean, one small allyship move is in a meeting setting like you're in, what perspective are we missing here? Oh, <laughs> lovely. Some awareness to it. Like that's all you have to say, because you don't want to tick off your client, right? But that's mm-hmm. a good question. It's like, hmm, how could we not see that we all look the same and maybe went to the same colleges or, you know, have the same background. It happens so much that that question kind of lifts the veil and it's hard to run from, um, but it also promotes positive change. Yes. Wow. Well, I can't thank you enough. What a great insights that you have. You've given me so many ideas and most of them are questions to ask and small behaviors to change. And, you know, I, I'm growing through this and I think people who are listening to this, if they're not started yet, you've given them the courage to start. If they have started, you've given them ideas of how to keep it going and to be more impactful I've just, I have just loved this conversation. I love this episode and I know it's going to be so well received. Thanks Tom. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Yes. Take care, Julie. Thanks everyone for tuning into episode seven of the Improvement Nerds podcast. Uh, It was an absolute blast hosting the conversation with Julie today. Every time I connect with her, I learn something new and I understand the importance of acting as an ally and lifting up those individuals who need representation. Julie is an amazing servant leader and she serves as a constant reminder that we can do better. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode.